Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Brandi Clay Brimmer about her new book, Claiming Union Union Widowhood, Race, Respectability, and Poverty in the Post-Emancipation South. Dr. Brandi Clay Brimmer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, Dr. Bremer, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, California, um, and I always like to start there. My grandmother um, recently transitioned, but but she was 90 years old, about 90 years old when she transitioned, and she was actually born in, in Los Angeles. And so I said that to say I have a long um, history in Los Angeles. Um, I'm the product of public schools, public education, um, tons of internships and volunteer work in the area. But one that was particularly stood out or, or was impactful for me was an uh, internship that I had at the Museum of African American Arts. Um, it's a community museum housed within um, the Crenshaw Mall and it's still in existence. Um, from there, I went to Spalding College um, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and so I, there I was exposed to uh, perspectives and approaches uh, to the world, um, but particularly new insights, feminist approaches to um, sociology, history, and culture, rich, deep, you know, humanistic education. After I finished college, I returned to Los Angeles with hopes of going to and dreams of attending law school. Um, and reimmersing myself, quite frankly, in the, the community institutions that provided the platform for me to go on to Selma, um family and community as well. I did a six-week um, sort of immersive experience in South Africa through Operation Crossroads, and that continued to open me to um, and, and, and gaining my confidence to think about Black studies and, and immersing myself in, in Black studies as a career trajectory, though still thinking about the law. And I went on to um, UCLA. I applied um, and was was really thrilled when I was um, accepted into the Black Studies MA program. Uh, that exposed me to not only Black studies as an intellectual discipline, um, further enriching my experience at, at Spelman, but also um, enabling me to sort of tiptoe into the history department and uh, work with uh, rising scholars that were coming out of the PhD program, but also to work with scholars like Brenda Stevenson, Robert Robert Hill, um, and many others. And um, that led to a PhD in in U.S. history, Um, and and it continued, continuing to sort of expand um, my work um, in the field, but always having attachments to uh, thinking about slavery and emancipation that always fascinated me. And, um, you know, from there, I, I don't have a traditional um, sort of um, experience in graduate school. So I've already mentioned that I took time off 
between undergrad and graduate school. I took some time off in the middle of graduate school um, and did some work at a foundation in New York, uh, returned to uh, do the, the research that really is the, the, the basis for uh, what we'll talk about today, planning union widowhood, but at the time it was my dissertation and I was making my way through the archives in national, uh, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., spending a lot of time there. And uh, from there, I did a, a um, I was very fortunate. I had a number of different um, uh, fellowship opportunities away from Los Angeles and also work opportunities. So I was kind of, kind of in and out of the profession. Um, I had time to work at a large uh, R1, private R1 research institution in um, the South. Uh, but then um, transitioned and had a really sort of pivotal experience working at the Freedmen and Southern Society Papers housed at the University of Maryland College Park. And so I'm painting this picture because these are all steps that really sort of led to, um, that laid the groundwork for, for the book that I would eventually write. Um, I would have written a much different book had I not had that time at the Freedmen uh, and Southern Society project under the tutelage of Leslie Rowland and Steve Miller, those are the principal editors at the time, um, though I still, I had the opportunity to interact with and meet with uh, Ira Berlin. From there, I would go um, on to work at Morgan State um, in the history department at, at Morgan State, and I always say, um, and credit Morgan State with, with uh, really making me as a historian and a teacher. Um, because that's when I really um, sort of blossomed into both of those things. And mainly because I just had fantastic students who really pushed me uh, on a number of questions when I was teaching the U.S. survey. But, but also um, helping me to think about my audience more as I wrote um, and being committed to the kind of project that I wanted to write. Um, and, and, and after Morgan, I did a, a, a brief stint at um, Stalin. Of course, the coronavirus <laughs> COVID-19 unfolded, um, had another fantastic fellowship opportunity, and, and I'm now here at UNC Chapel Hill. So <laughs> all of those things um, I will pull together in our discussion today and why they matter um, and, and how I wrote and approached um, Climbing Union, whatever. Wonderful. Well, let's get into it. So claiming union widowhood, how, how did you come to this project? Yes, I, I mean, so it's, it's interesting. Um, and, and a number of, of different ways or, or threads led me to uh, this project, um, probably from the most academic um, perspective. You know, I was, I was looking for a dissertation project. I had, again, deep interest in slavery and emancipation. And I was interested um, in, well, it, was a, it was a particular moment where these fantastic books were, were coming out or had, had been out, or it was my you know, first encounter with them, but I, I was reading you know, Glenda Gilmore's Gender and Jim Crow, and I was fascinated with that. And I was really fascinated with the discussion that that book generated in terms of, of class, um, in terms of not only middle-class black women, but um, poor and working class black women. On the other end of that conversation um, was, was Tara Hunter's To Joy My Freedom, which completely blew my mind, continues to blow my, my, my mind when I think about uh, what it took to, to achieve that book, uh, not only in terms of the beautiful narrative, but the archival approach. And, and, and both, both Hunter, but also Gilmore, right, uh, talking about how they were encountering the archives and thinking about how 
middle-class Black women challenge white supremacy and how working for Black women challenge white supremacy and free labor society. So these were just very interesting questions. In the middle of that, I had the good fortune of working with um, Laura Edwards, who um, was at UCLA before she moved on to Duke, um, and you know her her fantastic um, study on legal culture in the Reconstruction era. And a lot of the work that I was doing, still sort of looking into the 20th century, thinking about poor women and thinking about how uh, poor and working class women engage legal institutions and governmental institutions and challenge white supremacy, as Gilmore and Tara Hunter would talk about. Um, and really from the guidance, not only from the secondary literature that I was reading, but also guidance from uh, Laura Edwards and a number of scholars who were using pension records at the time, she said, well, well, you know, this, this might be an interesting place for you to start the study. So I, I had familiarity with the Freedmen's Bureau that certainly was on my watch, but, but the pension bureaucracy offered something different um, in terms of the way in which the system was set up and the, the uh, sort of deep reach into the sort of personal lives of individual claimants who were forging claims. And I thought, this would be an interesting place to sort of ask these questions. How did poor women challenge or, or engage legal and governmental institutions? And as a result of that, um, here's Clubbing Union Widowhood. <laughs> it, it is my answer um, to, to that. It's a very long and complicated answer to, to what is a very straightforward question. And so your study uses New Bern, North Carolina as its setting. So why did you choose this town and what was New Bern's black community like? So, um, you know, it's interesting um, to answer this this question now is definitely a, a methodological question that I've had to contend with for a long time, which is why I started by introducing myself from Los Angeles, because I had to really think about that. Um, and I think at the time when I was initially conceiving the project, um, I, I had some hunches, right? The, the secondary literature gave me some hunches. Um, Gilmore, um, tons of people who had written about Eastern North Carolina, knowing that the Union Army had established itself in the eastern part of the state relatively early in the Civil War, um, that freedom seekers were moving to those eastern counties, I, I thought that it would, I, I, I would be able to sort of pan out, you know, if I traced um, the military regiments, black regiments recruited in those areas, that it might also tell me something about um, the families, um, and a la Norley Frankel. Um, and so, and so I set out to, um, look at the regiments that were raised in the 35th, 36th, and 37th regiments of the United States colored troops. I went back and looked at the 14th U.S. Um, heavy artillery and other, um, groups. And, and so a number of things came from that. One, one thing that came from that is that, um, you know, to answer that question today is to say that, um, I didn't really sort of choose New Bern, but Freedom Seekers did, and I really was tracing the records. I really thought that this study was going to pan out in a place like Wilmington, North Carolina, because I knew much about the Wilmington massacres, and I thought, aha, this would be the answer to that. There are interesting things that are happening in Wilmington, and there's some reasons why some things are not happening in Wilmington. But in New Bern, you have several things coming together. One, you have this really rich pre-war black uh, community of artisans, 
um, and free blacks and enslaved blacks that are living, you know, really what people would say is this, this sort of living, enslaved people living uh, within communities of, of free blacks attached to and family, you know, attached to the family and other uh, ways. And, and, and so it's a really sort of interesting community uh, that that is also attached to the waterways. And so when you talk about movement, what enslavement looks like in a, in a, a port city, I was really sort of fascinated um, with that. What happens during the Civil War is you have uh, uh, white military administrators, um, also white regiments, black regiments being recruited. And, and thousands of freedom seekers coming into that area. So a pre-war population that's coming in slightly under 6,000, we have unofficial counts by the end of, end of the Civil War, but there's some um, 20,000 black refugees that are in that area. Um, so when you think about that demographic number, now you're talking about a city of, of black refugees that an urban space of black refugees that's on par with um, larger urban centers. And so it became really clear to me that that freedom seekers were making this a, a really uh, important place or staging ground for black working class politics. And so I really sort of followed the study from there. So, so again, very different answer from, well, I was looking at the 35th, 36th, and 37th Regiment. They recruited near New Bern to freedom seekers really picking that location and, and bearing the study out from there. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit a little bit about what the pension application process was like for Black Union widows. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this question because I think it's also at the heart of this book, right? And so in addition to, you know, so moving from a broad question of how did poor and working class Black women engage legal institutions and governmental institutions, I really wanted to know uh, how, how not only did they petition the U.S. pension bureaucracy, how do they sustain that relationship? Because uh, what I came to understand is that uh, these were long-term battles, but a long-term relationship. And so um, now that I'm centered in New Bern, I started to just sort of reconstruct to the extent that I could these stories. Um, I, I was seeking connections, but always in the backdrop of that, that, that those, those stories that I was reconstructing. How did they do this? And I wanted to know, I wanted to write a story from the, their perspective uh, because there have been fantastic works uh, written uh, by, you know, uh, Elizabeth um, uh, Rigason, um, Donald Schaefer, um, you know, and others who had really talked about not only pension eligibility, but also um, the claims process, application process from the perspective of, of the federal government. This is really a story about the claims application process from, from the poor women's perspective, how they encountered the state, how they began to do that. And what I found out is they did that through um, community institutions, through relationships and networks, that, um, social relationships that they built um, during um, that critical phase of the early years of the Civil War when they're coming into New Bern. Many of the institutions that may appear invisible in the records become very visible through pension records. And so um, it, it, over time, it wasn't a coincidence that a lot of the women that I was talking about um, still resided in James City, which was the former Trent River settlement. Others moved to an area of New Bern called the Fifth Ward. 
Um, and I was able, and through sort of building up individual stories, I started seeing that these weren't individual stories at all, that this was actually a community story. And that the, the individuals that would come to represent their claims were doing so at the behest of the women who were oftentimes um, they were in conversation with through their community institutions. And so uh, my answer to this, this, this question, uh, which I think is a, is a terrific one, is that this is really, you know, women, women sustained claim, you know, forged claims on the federal government um, through their relationships um, and community institutions help facilitate that process over long spans of time. So. I wonder if you could highlight just a few of those community institutions that you talk about within the book. Yeah, so um, one of the major sort of institutions that I would say would be uh, sort of the households and neighborhoods. So it was really important for me not only to identify individual names, but to really understand where people uh, were living. In, in, in other words, it's not that these names aren't available on the federal census, but there's nothing to indicate that these are um, pension seekers um, or applicants. Uh, so it was really important for me to have um, you know, to be able to go into the Civil War Index, to be able to identify uh, people and then retrace their steps in New Bern. And so what I began to see is that clusters of people within neighborhoods, oftentimes with relationships with other people in James City, um, th there was oftentimes connection. Then as I continued to move forward, um, I noted um, churches, for example, so the St. Ba uh, ba uh, John Baptist uh, Missionary Church in New Bern, and, you know, at the center of the, the Fifth Ward, um, this was a place that I found, I was, you know, I've been able to identify quite a few, not only uh, war widows, but also um, Black veterans who attended that institution. I've been able to uh, reconstruct and still in the process of that uh, uh, the, what was called known as the Beecher uh, Regiment 22, which is a, a, a GRA uh, branch, Grand Ar a Black uh, Grand Army Republic branch of Black veterans who um, very importantly came together and supported one another during the pension, pension application process, right, as that's unfolding for them as well. So in addition to, to churches, um, schools, um, neighborhoods, I would say those are the sort of principal sites where uh, you see individuals sort of coming together. Um, and, and then that really sort of spiraling out um, because of the nature of the application process, spiraling out to the very places where people were enslaved and bringing in those communities as well. So painting a very sort of elaborate portrait of life for uh, the black poor in this area during the, during the late 19th century. Wonderful. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about some of the obstacles that Black Union widows encountered in dealing with the U.S. Pensions Bureau. Yeah, so so one of the first, um, one of the major issues, um, right, when you're talking about this question is, you know, I think that, that, that historians quite rightfully, and myself as well, point to is, is documentary evidence. The inability of women to provide evidence of their marriages to soldiers. So let me back up a bit. Um, and that is to say that all widows, uh, no matter their color, under the pension laws, um, one in 1864 opens up to address uh, the fact that, uh, well, well, the general law pension system is set up 
um, early in the, the, the war. Um, black soldiers who uh, have families um, are unable to successfully make claims because they have to establish marriage under these laws. Um, enslaved people, we know their, their uh, marital relationships are not uh, sanctioned by, by law, but we know that they exist. And so in 1864, uh, lawmakers say, well, we will accept eyewitness testimony um, to account for that legal documentation. But one of the points that I try to make throughout the book is, is to really make the point that no matter what system Black women are claiming under, they are always facing this obstacle of marriage. Now, some may say, and some have said, well, the Pension Bureau went quite far to accept eyewitness testimony. But the, but the other point, and why I started saying, you know, I really wanted to explore how Black women were engaging the Pension Bureau and, and more importantly, the ideas that they were presenting to the Pension Bureau. They're presenting as legitimate uh, their, their family structures, their marital structures that oftentimes fall outside of uh, pension officials' um, understanding of the sort of heterosexual nuclear norm. And as a result of that, alongside ideas about Black women's um, sexuality or immorality, they oftentimes are facing this obstacle. And so that's one of the major interventions that I try to make in this study. I then join what other scholars have uh, presented, which is that um, in addition to not being able to present um, evidence of legal marriage with documentation, they don't have birth certificates, they have a hard time um, securing um, medical evidence from doctors to establish uh, their husband's service-related injuries. Uh, they have a long time, sometimes hard time, sometimes establishing what regiment their husband was in. There's also oftentimes they have issues with naming. Sometimes um, men present themselves um, to uh, recruiting officials and they change their name at the point of enlistment in part because they want to remain underground. Um, and so um, there's a number of different complications to include uh, many of the black women who traveled with regiments who were uh, employed um, as nurses as such. And James Schultz has done just a terrific job of um, you know, raising this question and issue to our attention. But oftentimes they're, they're laboring along with the regiments and they are, you know, nurses, for example, are ineligible for pensions until 1892. So there's a number of things, um, both in terms of documentation, but also because of sort of, uh, of ideas about uh, black women's immorality that prevent them from um, uh, laying claim to what I call a union widowhood um, and, and really obscuring how uh, people's ability to see um, these women as, as um, you know, part of the, the union cause. And I think that the Glenn makes this point so brilliantly in our more recent book, The Women's Fight, that we don't tend to see um, Black women as union widows and, and as war widows. And so, one of the some of the actors in this in this study are uh, claims agents. They're both black and white. Um, and so, I wonder if you could talk about the role that they play in your study. Well, well, they're quite significant. Uh, <laughs> in in New Bern, um, you have the first sort of wave of pension claims agents. Claims agents are, for all practical purposes, acting as attorneys. They are sometimes licensed attorneys in the state. 
And so by that, I mean they're, they're licensed by the state of North Carolina to practice law. But there are others who are essentially representing claims within the Pension Bureau and within the Pension Bureau referred to as, as attorneys, but don't have licensure um, to, to, to practice law within the state of North Carolina. So this was really a fascinating, you know, sort of story that I was able to tell from staying deeply immersed in the, the records and telling the local s story because I began to see that there was, you know, this full sort of industry of claims agents or attorneys, if you will, who were uh, deeply involved in, in this process. And, and in some respects, I think, you know, when I was giving early conference papers, people really wanted to know more about the claim agents than the women's claims themselves. And that is because these people were fascinating. One of those persons to emerge, in New Bern at least, is a man by the name of, of Frederick Douglass. And I always have to stop and say, not the abolitionist leader. But uh, from what I can tell, a former slave who emerges from Eastern North Carolina in Jones County, in fact, his first client was his mother. And uh, over time, he uh, works with white claims agents. Those agents were oftentimes agents of the Freedmen's Bureau, Sometimes they're just ambitious, ambitious um, individuals who um, have come to North Carolina during um, the war and are trying to make a go of things. Sometimes they're local individuals who lived in New Bern or returning individuals uh, who came to um, New Bern. Um, Augusta Seymour would go on to have a, a brilliant career on the United, you know, in North Carolina's uh, courts. So, so it's really interesting to look at this question from the perspective of both black and white claims agents. White agents oftentimes were able to use their work as claims agents on behalf of blacks and whites as a stepping stone to advance their careers within the legal system. Even if they had made missteps, and even in the case of a man by the name of E.W. Carpenter, who um, was had his license suspended, right? He was accused um, in part because of complaints filed by um, black Black widows um, saying that he wasn't turning over their monies. Douglas' story is, is far more complicated. And what I've come to understand is there's, they, while Douglas really becomes a centerpiece in Eastern North Carolina, and, and I would definitely say, you know, Douglas owes his career to these women. I think that, you know, that he would, he would, and, and, and um, injured veterans. Um, but, but, but they also trusted him. Douglas uh, was a, uh, again, former slave who emerges from this refugee community. Um, and sometime by 1870, I believe he's taking on the name um, Frederick, Frederick Douglass. Uh, but he would, he would go on to represent uh, both widows, uh, black and white, and black and white soldiers um, seeking disability uh, benefits from the, the Pension Bureau until his license was suspended. And it's, it's about 1894, but if you're reading the pension records, it starts to get fuzzy. Uh, because he he um, you know he he really sort of goes after trying to get his license reestablished. But I say that to say because you know Douglas isn't able to reestablish himself as a pension attorney in the bureau, um, nor did he have the kind of illustrious career that other white agents did at the time. Um, Douglas, you know, I try to tell his story with with warts and all in the the study. Uh, there are questions. Um, he, is, he is heavily surveilled by uh, uh, pension examiners who come into the area who are interviewing um, widows during the, the process of the claims, you know, process, but also paying close attention to Douglas. And quite frankly, I think that's because Douglas was so successful at helping so many people 
um, gain benefits. He's not completely successful. Um, there are several members of his, you know, or, or clients that he has that, that aren't able to um, secure benefits from the Bureau, but, but he's, he's quite successful. And that sort of captures the imagination of, of, of you know, Bureau officials in Washington, D.C. They want to know what's going on. Sometimes they say he's making up evidence about medical injuries. Sometimes he's, they, they accuse him of, of attributing uh, women being married to soldiers, you know, more than one soldier. So just a lot of different um, charges that he faces um, and ultimately has his, his license um, suspended. But part of the point that I try to make in the book and other articles that I've written is that no matter Douglas's intentions, he still facilitates a process and women's ability to sustain a long-term relationship with the federal government. And I think that uh, these women are who, are, who make up his client base, understand, and men as well, understand who Douglas is. They understand who he is in his community. And um, they, they feel comfortable with him uh, representing his claims. And so even after he is suspended, I have what I think is good evidence that he is continuing to support this community even by doing writing or other, you know, sort of, sort of um, um, alerting them, you know, individuals to their rights within the bureaus or different avenues or approaches that they can take if their claim has been rejected. So it's a long answer to say that I think claim agents play a really important role in terms of um, um, communicating about uh, rights uh, and what people are eligible for within the pension system but also um, um, helping them facilitate that relationship over long spans of time. So in some ways, I'm answering the question that I set up in the beginning. You know, how are women able to do this? Well, they're able to do it because of their own tenacity, learning about pension laws, but also the relationships that they're building with Black middle class uh, professionals during the time. And that's certainly the case in, in New Bern. And so one of the things I was sort of taken with was the uh, special examiners. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about sort of the tensions that existed between the Black uh, Union widows and special examiners. Uh, and if you could just sort of give us a bit of a, an idea of what this special examination process was. Yeah, so this is, this is really the heart of the study. And I think also gets back to um, initially when, when we started talking about the book, what it does and when I made the decision to say, you know, I, I wanted to understand how Black women were engaging the, the Pension Bureau. To ask that question um, in a place like New Bern is to talk about the special examination process and system. Uh, special examiner examination proceedings look much like, or, you know, court trials. Um, they, are, they are not court trials, but examiners, that, that is, representatives of the Pension Bureau, are coming in uh, to communities across the South, so certainly not just New Bern, but communities across the South, to follow up on women's cases. What I saw very early on when I was collecting uh, materials for this study and really not having a clue of what I was doing, but many of the case files that I was pulling were, were just huge. I mean, there was just, there were numerous investigations. It wasn't just one special examination, but a woman might have three to four special examinations over the course of her case. And I, you know, after a while, I said, well, wait a minute, what, what is going on? Part of that is because, as I said earlier, women aren't able to provide certain kinds of uh, legal documentation of their marriages, families, children's birth, 
And so examiners are coming down to actually capture that eyewitness testimony and evidence of marriage. That's also happening because there's a sense that, um, you know, uh, sometimes women are are not living their lives or, or, or there's a sense that are, are, are these actually worthy widows? Are they worthy of, you know, this, this name, union, union, widow, union widows? And so that's part of sort of what's going on in the title of my book, Claiming Union Widowhood. What did it mean for poor black women to be claiming benefits and, and collecting benefits on the same terms that white uh, union widows of the North were? Uh, but 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 also um, who was making decisions about that? The nature of the special examination process was that not only would special examiners come in and interview the petitioner, but they would also interview their immediate family members, neighbors, um, sometimes ministers, just, a, just oftentimes former um, enslavers, usually their employer. They would really try to get a sense of their life and how they were living their lives and what, what terms they were living their lives on. And that for me, you know, so when you talk about sort of black women's engagement with the federal government, legal institutions, for black women, that was really their interaction with special examiners. Special examiners came to represent um, the, the US pension bureaucracy. And over time, what I noticed in the pension records is that the more that women interacted with special examiners, the better they uh, understood pension law. So now they're interacting with claims agents, they're in interacting with special examiners, and they begin to talk in the language of the state to present their cases, oftentimes in very savvy ways. But what I oftentimes saw in the records was, was this idea that that black women were sexually immoral um, and, and, and therefore underserving of these benefits. And so one of the points that I also, also try to make in the book is that even when we see successful rates, that is uh, women who are successful um, at claiming benefits from the Bureau, we have to say, well, wait a minute, how long did that last? Because oftentimes, I mean, I have examples of women who, who uh, gained uh, benefits you know, after a long-term struggle um, of maybe three years it might take them to get on the pension roster, and then a year later they're off the roster. And then the rest of what you're seeing in the pension file is really them trying to reestablish uh, their, their name on the pension roster by talking about their worthiness within their community. So it's a, it's a, it's a very complicated um, story um, of, of really me trying to say, wait a minute, these women are presenting their own notions of worthiness and respectability, and not necessarily ideas of the black middle class, right? And so oftentimes you'll see even tensions within um, the black community, and that's really what I was interested in. Um, what's happening within um, the black communities over the meaning of union widowhood? Why, in some cases, community members are coming out to support some women, that same woman years later, people will offer a very negative testimony that results in them having their name drawn off of the, the pension rosters. All of that is bound up in the special examination process because the special examiners are, are capturing that information um, on the ground within the communities um, during, during that period. So it's a, the, the pension records are very uneven. Um, they are, uh, I, I don't want to give the, the, the idea that they are easy to work with. They are, they are not. They can sometimes be even very difficult to locate. 
which helps us understand how difficult it was to establish a claim within the pension system. But they can also be a wonderful way to um, get into the world of, of um, Black folk in the late 19th century um, and, and really sort of um, walk around in their world and see their world from their perspective, um, which was, which was um, you know, quite illuminating for me. Um, and, and, you know, many questions that I present um, in the book, I'm still sort of uh, sorting through. Yeah. Perfect. And so I wonder what you want readers to take away from reading your book. Well, I think <laughs> several, several things, um, several things I want them to take away um, from the book. Uh, but, but the first thing that I would want to say is that, you know, um, never underestimate the um, tenacity and skill sets of, of poor people that even though this is a study that presents like many of these are individual claims, this is absolutely uh, a movement of, of community relationships and women, uh, poor women, um, really showing their, their clear understanding of the law um, and their ability to move within the law and governmental institutions um, and then use those resources within their communities. And so it's very much a community um, study about as well um, the complicated nature of class as it emerges within late 19th century African American um, history. I think I would also want people to walk away saying, "Wow, you know, there's there's so much to be uncovered and discovered um, in the stories of Black life in the American South." And I think that my book only begins to scratch the surface of that. Um, I still find myself returning to the very people that I wrote about. Um, because they taught me so much about um, the American South and the, the possibilities um, that, that they envisioned for themselves, for their children, for their communities um, in the post-war South. And that gives me a tremendous amount of hope. And it also gives me, um, you know, sort of reflection points um, in difficult uh, political times as these women are experiencing not only lives of enslavement, transitioning during the Civil War, moving through a period of, of reconstruction and then moving to a, a more segregated society, that they remained hopeful and they continue to, to press the federal government uh, and locate openings to express and claim rights for themselves. And I think uh, that continues to inspire me and I hope that, that people will walk away with that and it will raise questions and intrigue for them and they'll, they'll join me in the archive. Well, Dr. Brandy Bremer, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'll just ask one final question. What are you working on now? Well, this is the summer month, so I'm working on um, starting, I am working on starting my garden, uh, my little pot garden in front of my house. But I'm also working on, um, I, I'm not gonna call it a biography, but a thematic study of claim agents with the centerpiece being uh, Frederick Douglass, who I talked a lot about uh, this afternoon. Um, it will be uh, more of a, uh, a a history that really sort of tries to dig into some of the major sort of core themes of of African American history from naming, of course. I mean, how could I not with this name, Frederick Douglass? <laughs> um, it will it will certainly play a bit with that, but also um, thinking about socio legal processes um, and and really sort of making the case to think about more expansive sort of politics in late 19th century black communities. Um, so I'm really gonna use that as an opening point um, 
continue to work through Freedmen's Bureau records, Southern Claims Commission records, but also pension records um, to, to, to deepen understandings about Black community, uh, political communities and legal communities um, during the post-emancipation South. So, wow, that's wonderful. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm working at. Yeah. That sounds amazing. So uh, obviously you're going to be working with the pension records there. Do you have any tips for anybody else that's going to be working with pension records? Well, um, you know, I would say be patient. Uh, I would say be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just really um, diligent. You know, there's there's many cases that I have, you know, I was, I was looking at old records that I have, but, but many times, you know, I had to write, um, different federal agencies over long periods of time. Um, I spent an enormous amount of time at the National Archives. You know, a lot of that has changed, and it's changed because of COVID-19, how we interact with archives. Much of that was changing even before COVID. You know, when I when I started this project uh, many, many years ago, um, I was able to, to photocopy batches of files, you know, at, at one time. That, that's all changed. You know, but but what else has changed is that there are really important digital tools that can can at least make the process. If you do that work on the front end, identifying names, um, filling out the, the sort of paperwork, you can make the experience go faster once you're at the National Archives. Um, and, and, and I think the difference that my study made is that I did look at people in a concentrated area. And so I was able to make connections. Uh, between cases that would have looked very differently if 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 I took you know case files from different locations and I think there's there's something to be said for that right because I really it was helpful for me to to build on the work of other scholars uh, but but folks like Norley Franco and myself um, Leslie Schwalm one could argue uh, more recently Holly Pinero really looking at cases in a concentrated area I think tells really important community histories um, that that my hope is that over time um, those will link up and and that for me started with the pension record so I, I would say be patient it is frustrating it can be very difficult uh, but I think the thing that has sustained me is just knowing that the women themselves went through this process um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna go through uh, the process as well try to, to piece together the stories yeah. awesome Awesome. Wonderful. So Dr. Brandy Clay Brimmer, author of Claiming Union Widowhood, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and take care. Likewise. Thank you so much.